Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. See the club's videos on YouTube and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter, where we are live streaming as we speak. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Ethics and Accountability Series, gratefully underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation. I'm Lenny Mendoza, the Chief Economic and Business Advisor to the State of California and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Directors, and I'm your moderator for this evening's program. I'm now pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, George Will, columnist for the Washington Post and author of the new book, The Conservative Sensibility. Mr. Will has been a columnist for the Washington Post since 1974 and is one of the most influential political pundits today. He received the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1977 and is a regular contributor to both MSNBC and NBC News. He grew up in Champaign, Illinois, attended Trinity College and Oxford University, and holds a Ph.D. from Princeton University. Dr. Will is outspoken about his dissatisfaction with the directions that both the American right and left have taken in this nation. His new book, which we'll be discussing this evening, The Conservative Sensibility, asks Americans to revisit their history books and remind ourselves of the values America was founded upon, values from which he sees both sides of the aisle dangerously straying. The book covers everything from the natural rights of man, the history of American democracy, to the modern capitulation of congressional checks on the power of the executive. He believes the solution to many of the high-profile political issues of today can be found by going back to the founders' intentions for the nation and by grounding modern solutions more solidly in a historical context. People of all political affiliations have found themselves in agreement with much of what he has to say. Today we're going to have a conversation with one of America's most widely respected journalists and political commentators, a man described as one of erudite wit. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome from, to San Francisco to George Will. Welcome, George. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so George and I had a conversation before we came out in the green room, and we decided that since there is a Democratic political debate going on tonight, we'd actually not talk about politics at all, and we talk about his prior book. So, George, tell us about baseball. (laughs) My Cubs are doing better than your Giants. Oh, there we go. That's That's a a low bar. That is a low bar. We're hitting about 225, I think, so that's not a high bar. But um, seriously, welcome to San Francisco. We're delighted you're here and and, uh, look forward to an engaging and serious conversation this evening. Uh, so let me start with, you, you've written 15 books before this one, I believe, yes. and uh, didn't have to write another book, but this moment in time is an important one for a, a serious conversation about what, what Americans should be thinking about. What, tell us why you decided to do this. Well, I, I started on this book well before the 2016 election, uh, because it seemed to me that conservatism was somewhat unmoored from its traditional roots in uh, the founders' philosophy. And because uh, 
it, it seemed to me that the enormous intellectual pedigree that conservatism brings needed to be uh, reacquainted with the American people. But beyond that, uh, I've been struck as a Princetonian by the degree to which American political argument for the last century has been an argument between two Princetonians, James Madison of the class of 1771 and Thomas Woodrow Wilson, Tommy as he was known at Princeton, uh, of the class of 1879. Woodrow Wilson was the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did root and branch. He was, and he was remarkably, he and the other progressives were A, remarkably candid and forthright about their rejection of the founders' natural rights doctrine and the institutional architecture that flowed from that. And they've been amazingly successful. And I thought it was time to, to, to start the counter-revolution, counter-counter-revolution, if you will. <laughs> and uh, so you began that journey uh, well before the last election. I did. Uh, in a way, this is an outgrowth of – I've been working on the book for four or five, six years now. But uh, it's an outgrowth of my doctoral dissertation, which I wrote in the mid-'60s at Princeton, the title of which was Beyond the Reach of Majorities. That's a phrase that Justice Jackson – he put in the Supreme Court opinion, overturning, after just three years, overturning the earlier decision in which uh, the Supreme Court said it was legitimate for states to require Jehovah's Witness schoolchildren to salute the American flag, even though it contravened their most basic beliefs. Supreme Court rethought that, overturned it, and Justice Jackson said, uh, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities, to place them above the vicissitudes of politics. But that, in 1965, 6, and 7, when I was working on that, also, I think, reflected the fact that I grew up in central Illinois, marinated in the spirit of Lincoln, grew up in Champaign County. My father was a professor of uh, philosophy at the University of Illinois. And local lore has it that it was in the Champaign County Courthouse that Lincoln, then a prosperous traveling railroad lawyer, learned of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, sponsored by uh, Stephen A. Douglas, the senator from Illinois. The Kansas-Nebraska Act undertook to solve the vexing problem of what to do about the possibility of slavery expanding into the territories. Stephen Douglas said, vote it up or vote it down, it's a matter of indifference to me. He said, popular sovereignty in the territories is the answer. Lincoln's implacable, canny, unrelenting recoil against this idea that we should submit everything in, in life to a vote uh, propelled him to what I think is the greatest career in the history of world politics. So in a way, I've been worrying about the problem of, is America about majorities? Is it about a process, majority rule? Or is it about a condition, liberty? I come down on the side of the latter. Okay. And uh, from your doctoral thesis, you've been an observer of what's happening yes. and a commentator on American policy and politics. Why at this point in time it is, is it so important to have this conversation again? What is going on? Well, what's going on is, among other things, a, a, the wonderful equilibrium, a kind of Newtonian physics of our politics. Three branches of government, two branches, the legislative branch, each with different electoral constituencies and electoral rhythms. Vetoes, veto overrides, supermajorities, judicial review, a whole array of measures to slow down opinion, Madison said, 
majorities will rule, majorities should rule, but majorities' opinions should be refined and filtered and slowed in order to have, and I love this phrase in his writing, he wanted mitigated democracy. And uh, it seems to me we've lost that. In the first place, populism is the reverse of everything that conservatism stands for. Second, the founders made Congress Article One for a reason. Article Two, which defines the president, uh, half of Article Two is devoted to how you select a president and how you remove one if necessary. Its stipulation of his duties is in the take care clause. He shall take care that the laws are faithfully executed. He is therefore structurally, definitionally secondary. Yet, we have presidents of both parties exercising powers given to him by Congresses controlled by both parties. As Congress has divested itself of powers, it has no right to divest itself of. The first substantive words of the Constitution, that is the first words after the preamble, are all legislative power shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Madison, the one great error my hero Madison made, was he said, under popular government, all power is sucked into the impetuous vortex of the legislature. The reverse has been going on for 80 years. Congress has been all too willingly sh- shedding powers to the executive to the point at which we have presidents utterly unconstrained in the waging of war. We have presidents able, because Congress gave them the authority, to impose taxes, which is what tariffs are, on the American people with Congress not involved. We have presidents taking funds appropriated for one purpose and repurposing them to another. In other words, we have an unconstrained executive at the head of an administrative state that is unresponsive to Congress and out of control. So presumably in that 80 years, this wasn't a deliberate attempt to lessen the power that Congress has by themselves and increase the power of the executive. People are always saying, well, presidents have usurped power. Well, if only they'd had to usurp it. This power was given to them improvidently. And and what's at the root cause of that, and is there a way to reverse that? Well, there are a number of root causes, one of which is that uh, Congress is awfully busy. We've had 535 members of the House for a century, And in that century, the business of government, the busyness of government has increased, I'd estimate, 50-fold, literally. So they don't have time to superintend all that they're authorizing and funding the government to do. But beyond that, I believe ideas have consequences. And indeed, I believe that only ideas have large and lasting consequences. And today's president is the triumph, I'm bound to say, of the progressive overthrow of, of, uh, of the Madisonian equilibrium. Woodrow Wilson became the first president to criticize, as I say, the American founding. And he had an idea that, that presidents should be the great interpreter of the national mood and the national purpose, that Congress should be marginalized. Now, in this, he, in a way, he was the legatee of Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt had what he called the stewardship idea of the presidency, which was that the president is free to do whatever he wants as long as it isn't explicitly forbidden. So you began to see the modern presidency, and this is related somewhat to modern technologies of communication. Teddy Roosevelt 
before he became president, became the first person to be president who'd been filmed by a movie camera. We really reached the apogee, though, when something came along that was as exciting to Americans in its day as the Internet is in ours. That's radio. Radio gave presidents this enormous reach and this enormous intimacy. Franklin Roosevelt, in the when he gave his first fireside chat to the country on the radio after his inauguration in 1933, he began with two words that do not appear in the transcript of his fireside chat at Hyde Park. And the two words were, my friends. Now, we're so used to this fall intimacy we have with our presidents. We've had presidents who feel our pain and all the rest. Uh, they don't, actually, but it makes <laughs> that, that It doesn't strike us nowadays, well, what's unusual about that? Try to imagine... General Washington addressing a group as my friends, that austere Virginian. I don't think so. Uh, I'm not sure I want a president to be my friend. I want him to take care that the laws are faithfully executed and otherwise get out of the center of the national consciousness. Okay. Um. I I don't know where to go with that, but um, so the... um, Presumably, we're going to have a difficult time putting back in the bottle some elements of yes. what's advancing <clears throat> technology, communication, um, the media more broadly. But there, there, you know, you, you did not write and believe that this was an important set of ideas to get out to believe that we couldn't do something about it. So, right. what are the areas of opportunity to ensure that we are more? more balanced than the way you describe, where Congress takes its Article I role serious. First, we have to acquaint the American people with the reality of the government they have. If you walk into Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, if you walk into his office, you'll see two stacks of paper. One's about three inches tall. That's what Congress passed in a recent session, all the laws they did. The other is eight feet tall. Those are the rules and regulations churned out by the executive branch, usually in response to the vagaries that Congress passes and is pleased to call laws. Congress essentially says, we should have high-quality education. You, you and the bureaucracy fill in the details and make all the hard trade-offs, and we will get credit for this aspiration. Same is true with environmental regulations and all the rest. Okay. Um, we are now at a, at a moment where we are having the beginnings, including tonight, of debates about the future mm-hmm. presidency, the next set of ideas that ought to be part of the dialogue. Um, are, are you feeling any sense of opportunity to insert the sets of ideas that you're talking about into that conversation, or is this not the way it's ever going to happen? I st- I, well, I think books matter. Uh, I know this is painfully old media, and here I am in in the heart of uh, the new media, Silicon Valley and all that, but I I think that uh, whatever Bill Gates and uh, all the rest have done, Gutenberg was there first and did it better. Um, I think that books matter, and I'm trying to get get it out there. I think this, of course, the most important book since the invention of movable type. Um, (laughs) But uh, start a conversation. Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously one day when 
after she'd been elected head of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, but before becoming Prime Minister, she was at a meeting with one of her with all of her members, and one of them was up nattering on about the beauty of centrism and the unnecessary intrusion of philosophy into politics. And she finally, exasperated, reached into her famous and capacious handbag, pulled out a copy of Frederick Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty, slammed it on the desk and said, this is what we believe. I fully expect that some president someday will pick up the conservative sensibility and (laughs) slam, slam it on the desk and say, this is what we believe. But that would, you see, again, ideas have consequences. In order to, to be, to get an advanced degree in the latter half of the 19th century in America before our universities began to develop graduate schools, you went to Germany. And a lot of people, uh, our PhDs, went to Germany where they acquired a great respect for the Bismarckian state and for the Hegelian philosophy that celebrated the state as the unfolding of reason in history. And they came back and taught in the United States. Some of them came back to Johns Hopkins and taught a Ph.D. candidate named Woodrow Wilson, who then went on himself to really pioneer the academic field of public administration. And the world got worse from then. Well, I I have uh, often said, I will now belabor you with this opinion of mine, that the most important decision taken in the 20th century wasn't Germany deciding to support Austria in the First World War. And it wasn't Hitler invading Russia in the Second World War. And it wasn't Deng Xiaoping modernizing China. The most important decision in the 20th century was where to locate the Princeton Graduate School. <laughs> President of University Woodrow Wilson wanted it down on the campus. His nemesis, Dean Andrew Fleming West, wanted it where it is, which is up on a hill overlooking the campus. Woodrow Wilson had one of his characteristic tantrums, resigned, went into politics, and ruined the 20th century. (laughs) I exaggerate a bit and simplify somewhat. But Woodrow Wilson uh, had this theory of that, that the separation of powers was all right once upon a time when the American people were four million strong, strung along the eastern fringe of a largely unexplored continent, uh, 80% of them living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. But Wilson said, no, now we are a complicated nation united by steel rails and copper wires, and we need a nimble government and a, a forceful president who can wield this nimble government and a public administration that can apply science to society. Remember, science was in the air, then literally in the air. The Wright brothers, Marconi, Edison, Ford, all the rest. A great confidence that the progressives had. It's all in Herbert Crowley's book, The Promise of American Life, published in 1909 and never since out of print. There are not many books... You could say that. It was a, the fecundity of that book in shaping American life. I mean, it gave uh, Louis Brandeis gave a copy to Theodore Roosevelt when he was going to Africa to shoot big animals. And he read it on safari and came back. He was, a, this was the book that was the inspiration for the founding of the New Republic magazine. And again, I give the progressives credit for a forthrightness in rejecting the natural rights theory. Of, of our government, first come rights, then comes government. 
and for the, the enormous success they've had. So we're, if we're not going to have a, a book-length reading conversation for the average American, and we don't want to have policy designed by tweets, where do we actually create the space to have the kind of serious conversation, the kind of dialogue, the return to real deep understanding of the essence of what the debate is? Well, partly government has to do less because it's now doing more than it knows how to do. We need a real argument now, a real conversation about the proper scope and actual competence of government. The great non-sequitur of Woodrow Wilson and the public administration people was this. They said the more complicated society becomes, the more it requires government to intervene in it, in allocation of wealth and opportunity, and the more government must regulate it. Hayek and others, great economist Hayek, Nobel Prize winner, said that's exactly wrong. The more complicated society becomes, the more trepidatious government ought to be before intervening in it, because the law of unintended consequences will take over. You will get government intervening hither and yon in these incredibly complicated systems, and it... The law of unintended consequences, of course, is that the unintended consequences of interventions in large systems, complicated systems, the unintended consequences are apt to be larger than and contrary to the intended consequences. I think uh, Elizabeth Warren, for example, um, has a firm grip on half a point. (laughs) She looks at at the government and says... This government is heavily involved in allocating wealth and opportunity. There is a reason why five of the ten wealthiest counties in the United States by per capita income are in the Washington area. We don't have any natural resources. We don't manufacture anything but laws and trouble. And But we, trillions of dollars slosh through Washington. It's been well said by someone in Washington that if you lay out a picnic, you expect to draw ants, and the biggest picnic in the world is the federal budget. And the ants are the, are the rent-seeking interest groups that try to bend public power to private advantage. Elizabeth Warren's absolutely right about that. But then she says the solution is to make the government very much bigger and to make it even more intrusive in allocating wealth and opportunity. It seems to me that's wrong to put it mildly, that what we need to do is get the government to step back from allocating wealth and opportunity and let market forces work. Markets are information-generating mechanisms. They tell us what millions of people making billions of decisions a day are churning out in the, in the, in the collaborative, voluntary, contracting allocation of wealth and opportunity. So... You know, in some theoretical world, we have political markets, too. Yes. Where we have the opportunity, at least periodically, to have the kind of debate alternative choices and Mm -hmm. lead to at least an electoral mechanism that creates some opportunity change direction. Um, How do we, if we can make that market part of how we have the conversation that you're you're encouraging and, and have a real debate that doesn't feel like it's happening at all within the political parties? I th- you know, I think the political market's working. That doesn't mean it's working beautifully. It doesn't mean it's working, to my 
preference. But I think uh, the American political market is a fairly sensitive seismograph. Can I say that in San Francisco? Yes, of course uh, you can. We haven't had an earthquake in a while. Measuring all the tremors in the electorate. I, I think it responds very quickly. Now, what the electorate has been saying is, I think, unfortunate in recent years. But it, it has been clearly registered by the political system. And what is it that, that – what's the reading? A large number of Americans feel left out, left behind, but more important, they look – they feel uh, condescended to. They feel despised. They feel that the, some people regard them, to coin a phrase, uh, as a basket of deplorables. Uh, they, they, so there's not just material deprivation, but there's status deprivation that I think is, is gnawing at a lot of people. Um, so I'm just reading through the very large number of questions that were were coming in. So let me uh, raise one of these. So one of the requirements, if we were going to have a, a robust conversation and encourage people to read book-length works, is that we have an education system and an encouragement of people yes. to do that through not just waiting until you're in political life or in Consumer, but in a in a in a earlier stage in your life, how, how do you feel about what we if where we are on the ability to have that as part of our educational process, both before and after secondary? Well, uh, civics education in our country barely exists anymore. Uh, the idea that people should be taught a how the system works and b that the system works that way because we wanted it that way because certain ideas made this made this uh, advisable to the founders, who again said, we adhere to the doctrine of natural rights. First come rights, then comes government. The most interesting verb in the, in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and to secure those rights, governments are instituted among men. To secure those rights... Progressive view is the reverse of that. Hand me that book for a minute. I threatened it you backstage. I was going to read something. <laughs> this would be of considerable interest to this group. In uh, September 23, 1932, Franklin Roosevelt, campaigning for the president for his first term, came to San Francisco to the Commonwealth Club. And he gave a speech in which he said the following. The Declaration of Independence discusses the problem of government in terms of a contract. Government is a relation of give and take, a contract perforce if we would follow the thinking out of which it grew. Under such a contract, rulers were accorded power, and the people consented to that power on consideration that they be accorded certain rights. The task of statesmanship has always been the redefinition of these rights in terms of a changing and growing social order. That is, I wrote a 565 page book to refute that paragraph. <laughs> uh, the idea that government, we are accorded rights by the government is just antithetical to what the founders thought, which is why. Woodrow Wilson said, again, with the remarkable candor of the man, he said, do not read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration. That's all just Fourth of July boilerplate to him. He said, it will only mislead you. Okay. So 
we, uh, we have an opportunity for another great thinker at the Commonwealth Club today to refute that in a way that's 565 pages, something like, something that, like yeah, that. Yeah. So if you wanted to um, distill the essence of what's the alternative view that we should be talking about okay. at the Commonwealth Club today, yeah. what, what would that essence be? Well, it would be the conservative sensibility. Sensibility is, by that I mean it's more than an attitude, but it's less than an agenda. I didn't write a book to tell people what to think, but to suggest how to think about a complex society. And uh, if you, the, the essence of the conservative sensibility is this. Someone has said that the story of the Bible, reduced to one sentence, is... God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. <laughs> to, to the conservative sensibility, loss of control is exhilarating. It's excellent. In the phrase American conservatism, the adjective American does a lot of work because European conservatism arose out of throne and altar, blood and soil, the myths of history and all that. And it was largely to buttress established orders and institutions and hierarchies. American conservatism is the reverse. American conservatism wants to keep society open to perpetual dynamism. That's why capitalism, which is a perpetual revolution, the, the greatest hymn of praise to capitalism is in the Communist Manifesto, where Marx and Engels say, under capitalism, everything disappears into thin air. Good, say conservatives. Let's see what's on the other side of the mountain. Let's see what's coming next. Because the change that is produced by the fecundity of a, of a market society is breathtaking. Uh, so in, in that sense, American conservatism wants to... Well, it's a paradox. Conservatives want to conserve the freedom of constant change. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Okay. Um, Some questions I want to put a, a... a phrase in front of me to get your reaction to it. So the, the first one is, um, remember that United States is a federalist system mm-hmm. and that we're paying way too much attention to Washington and not what's going on around the country. Absolutely right. Oh, absolutely right. When Brandeis, good progressive, said the states are the laboratories of democracy, uh, he understood a, a fact. He didn't have 50 states then. We do now, but... It's simply the case that we're more apt to have one or two really intelligent and imaginative governors at any time than we are to have an imaginative and intelligent president. There's only one of them at a time, and there are 50 governors. And we've seen enormous things done with education and welfare and environmental matters and all the rest coming out of society, out of states. Uh, the state of California is a good example. I think... Uh, uh, much of what is done out here probably ought to be rethought, but uh, but there's no there's no absence of creative vigor out here. Thank you. 
at least for the second part. It was a backhanded compliment. Listen, I'll take creative vigor from you as a compliment. So thank you. Um, So uh, let me uh, another uh, comment. American media today is a bigger problem than an asset to American democracy. It is a problem. In a sense, we've gone back to the future. That is, uh, there's more partisanship in the media than there used to be. But in the 1790s, when political parties, which were neither anticipated nor desired by the founders, suddenly materialized, journalists and journalism, newspapers, which is what media was then, newspapers were in many cases party projects. Mm -hmm. Jefferson, for example, as Secretary of State, gave lucrative printing contracts to sympathetic newspapers. So in a sense, we've gone back to that. And we may one day look back upon the idea of objective, disinterested journalism as an episode that we went through. Uh, I think that's unfortunate. But uh, look, in, in 1980, one year before CNN went on the air, In 1980, at the dinner hour in the United States, 80% of all the television sets in use were tuned to ABC, NBC, and CBS. Now, technology has obliterated that oligopoly. And I think on balance, that's a good thing. But unquestionably, when you have this wide proliferation of sources so that people can define journalism on their own and get it on their own time, the society becomes tremendously susceptible to confirmation bias. Everyone in their own intellectual silos getting only information that confirms what they're comfortable believing. And it's a serious problem. And it does unquestionably exacerbate the polarization. Okay. Uh, Another assertion that the decline in the functioning of American democracy and the confidence in that is doing enormous damage to American standing around the world? I think, uh, uh, I, I don't think the damage to American standing around the world is being done by the American people. I think it's being done by uh, a president who, to give him his due, uh, campaigned on overturning not only our domestic norms of civility, but uh, our international arrangements that were created in the aftermath of the worst war in in history and has kept the peace rather well for 70-some years. Um, I think this is all voluntary. I think this is is a plan. In a way, it, it is perversely a promise kept on the part of the current president. I will note for the record that we're over 30 minutes into this conversation before we mention the president. Yeah, I was on Bill Maher's show recently, and he said, uh, George, you don't mention that Donald Trump's name doesn't appear in the book. And I said, neither does Doris Day's name. <laughs> because th- this is a book about ideas. <laughs> okay, well, that's the last conversation we'll have about that man today. So, good. Um, I want to ask you a question that one of our audience members uh, wrote around the future of the Republican Party. Um, is the Republican Party viable going forward? And what, what uh, 
can they do to recapture the standing? American political parties are such simple organisms. They're very hard to kill. Uh, it has happened in the past. I mean, the Democratic Party is, I think, properly calculated, the oldest political party in the world. Uh, the Republican Party uh, emerged in the mid-1850s, and our, the two parties have structured our political argument since then, and that's an amazing stability in our political system. Um, the Whig Party came a cropper on an issue, the largest issue we've ever had, which is slavery. Uh, I think our parties are sensitive market mechanisms, and they will adapt right now. Unfortunately, they're responding, I think, not rationally to certain intense factions in the society. Uh, I think they all watch too much cable television, to tell you the truth. Well... There's 327 million people in this country. At any given moment, 320 million of them are not watching cable television and are not listening to talk radio. They're cleaning the gutters and fixing the screen door and raising children and going to work and getting on with life. The cable audience is angry. The talk radio audience is angry. I think the American people are sad, embarrassed, and exhausted, not angry. I think they're sad because they're embarrassed, and they're exhausted because it's exhausting being embarrassed constantly. But uh, someone's got. I think the market will produce a political leader who says, "All right, everybody, deep breath," and then he will repeat to the American people the penultimate paragraph of Lincoln's first inaugural address, which began, "We are not enemies; we must not be enemies." This was a president speaking at a moment when seven states had already voted to leave the union to secede. And people will look around and say, what are we arguing about? Because it's not, I mean, for all the talk about the discord in America, and the discord's real, I am much more alarmed by a consensus. It's as broad as the republic, it's as deep as the Grand Canyon, and it is this— we should have a large, generous entitlement state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed on that. <laughs> From Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz, the political class is more united by its class interest than it is divided by ideology. And its class interest is to make big government cheap by giving the American people a dollar's worth of government and charging them 80 cents for it. Public loves it. The only people who have an objection aren't born yet because they're the ones who are going to get the bill. See, we used to borrow money for the future. We fought wars for future generations. We built highways and roads and dams and bridges for the future. Now we're borrowing from the future to finance our own current consumption of goods and services. And that, if that isn't decadent democracy, I don't know what is. So um, part of what um, enables that to continue is that we've not yet had the disruptive event that alters that landscape yes. and enables that new voice to occur. In the past, the, most of the circumstances you mentioned were interrupted by cataclysmic yes. wars and other national events. Short of something that is that level of disruption, what is going to cause a level of change that enables us to get out of that that environment. It's very hard to turn the American people and say, promises have been made to you that we can't afford to keep. 
that we just we simply cannot generate the revenues to pay the bills. In 1965, with Medicare, we attached the most rapidly growing portion of our population, the elderly, as a matter of entitlement to our most dynamic science, medicine. And it's tremendously expensive. Longevity is a wonderful social achievement, but it's hugely expensive. Something like 40% of Medicare patients are living with two or more chronic ailments, any one of which would have killed them before the age of pharmacology. Now, I am not against the elderly. <laughs> I am elderly. I was born in 1941 in Champaign, Urbana, Illinois. University town, good hospitals. But I was born, I'm sure, because it was true of almost all hospitals back then, I was born in a hospital in which the principal expense was clean linen. This was before MRIs and CAT scans and electron microscopes and laser surgery and all the rest of the diagnostic, therapeutic, pharmacological arsenal we're delighted to have and reluctant to pay for. It's 18% of the gross national product now and inexorably going to rise. The Census Bureau doesn't just keep track of the elderly. It keeps track of a group called the very old. Those are Americans 85 years old or older. In percentage terms, that is the most rapidly growing cohort in the country. That matters because the health care costs for, a 55, for an 85-year-old are five times higher than the cost for a 55-year-old. This is expensive longevity. Longevity is good. Expensive is not good. That's right. Okay. But they go together. Yes, they do, unfortunately. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, the degradation of discourse and whether it's possible, again, to have an environment where people can disagree politically but not have a be an emotional or identity-based conversation? Yeah. Well, uh, first is to quit the politics of identity, to have a politics of individualism, a politics of Americans standing for and being evaluated for their ideas and not for the groups of which they're members, because these groups inevitably become grievance groups in the quest of a victim status by which you can have an ever more bitter distributional politics. That is one of the, the sources of our, of our discontent. The problem is you cannot unring a bell. And certain things are now have become, in just very recent years, I'm trying to avoid talking about Voldemort here, but uh, <laughs> things have been said of a sort that have never been said by a president in the United States. No one ever talked like this before. To take just one example, uh, a president overseas, overseas, quotes one of the most odious dictators on the planet, the head of North Korea, calling the former vice president of the United States a low IQ idiot and approving what the dictator of North Korea said. Now, that's unheard of. My wife was... Uh, speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and his last White House Director of Communications. They weren't allowed to attack Democrats, not even say, not Democrats, not generically, not, never mind a particular person, just what, not the way we talk. Try to imagine Jack Kennedy or 
Dwight Eisenhower or Herbert Walker Bush talking like that's inconceivable. The, the question, and we don't know the answer, is can we snap back to some the idea that some kinds of behavior just aren't acceptable anymore? The good news, looking on the bright side, which I am disinclined to do, uh, <laughs> the good news, if one president can change rapidly discourse for the worse, maybe another president can as rapidly change it for the better. We should try. I'm at least, and it wasn't uh, long ago history, but recent history, the academy, colleges, universities, were places where there were good, serious intellectual debates about the topics that we might be talking about or others that are even more aggressive. Is there any possibility that we can have an informed debate, conversation on campuses again? It's going to be harder there than it is in the rest of society, which is really odd when you think about it. Uh, a number of 1960s radicals went to earth in the academy and got tenure and have been reproducing themselves ever since. And it, uh, there is a sense in which universities have decided that their role is not the transmission of the best that has been thought and said, to use Matthew Arnold's formulation. It's not to transmit this, it is therapeutic. It is to fix the consciousness of the imperfect students that come within their their scope. As long as universities feel that their job is is consciousness raising to produce a progressive cohort, uh, it, it will not get better. And I speak as one who's been disinvited from a campus. I, I recently gave the baccalaureate, which is the equivalent of the commencement address at Princeton the, um, a month ago. And um, some people got up and they were quite indignant with me and turned their backs, but they were quiet about it, so it was fine. Uh, so I, I mean, I've, I've experienced it. I come from an academic family. I was, I, I got a PhD because I intended to teach and briefly did. Uh, so I'm, I'm deeply devoted to <clears throat> our great research universities. It took us eight centuries to evolve these institutions through the thickets of political and ecclesiastical interference. But what it took us eight centuries to produce can be frittered away in a generation of people who do not understand how fragile it is. Okay, if... You don't look to the academy to have a spirited discussion and debate about the topics with which you care so deeply. Where do you go? Where do you find the nourishment for a real discussion, debate around yeah, the future uh, of conservatism? Uh, civil society in its richness, uh, magazines, newspapers, uh, think tanks. When conservatives realized in the f- f- 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the conservative post-war revival began, they realized that they didn't have the academy, didn't have Hollywood, didn't have the media. They decided to create their own intellectual ecosystem, if you will. Think tanks, the American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, Cato, etc., and state-based think tanks all across the country. Every state has one now. So American, the social soil in America is 
rich with the energy that de Tocqueville discovered and marveled at in the 1830s. The tremendous American impulse to band together in small groups and change things. So I'm, I, I don't despair of the, this rich American loam producing new plants. Okay, great. So we, do we have places where you can have a honest, spirited debate within those institutions and not know what the answer is going to be given who's saying it before you start? I think so. Uh, leadership matters. Emerson said that every institution is the lengthening shadow of a man. He would say today a man or a woman. Um, Colleges and universities are often lengthening shadows of their presidents. Look what Mitch Daniels has done at Purdue University. Just six years without a tuition increase. A green light award from FIRE, the Institution for the Freedom in Education. Uh, Princeton is good about this. Uh, Princeton had a, uh, of course, has Woodrow Wilson all over the place, the Wilson School, Wilson College, uh, and some African-American students are becoming cognizant of Wilson's very retrograde views on race, uh, got angry and protested, and uh, the president of Princeton, Chris Eisgruber, talked to them, and everyone calmed down, and uh, some changes were made, but... It's leadership matters, and uh, I don't despair of that either. Okay, you're making me sound more cheerful than I am. It's <laughs> I'm working. It. Interesting. You're, you're in California. Everything's possible, oh, so we have to yeah. think about. You know, we're not going to have All a right. gloom and doom conversation tonight. All right. Come on. So, um, some questions around when when you were looking for inspiration. I'm just not asking you to be an advertisement for journals, but what. Or newspapers or others, but what do you what where do you read that gives you inspiration? Are there places that you go that you would encourage people to? Yeah, I read the New York Times, Washington Post, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal every day, and then I read on my phone what are called the aggregators: Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Markets, Real Clear Defense, Real Clear World, etc. There's an enormous amount of good writing going on. The Federalist website, just I could go on and on and on, but. Uh, there are a lot of young people out there like to write and know how to write and think, and uh, it's good stuff. Okay, and um, and so when you're when you're using the aggregators, is there something that you search for? I'm just trying to get to people. No, saying, where would you look? I, I, I look there and I see things that I might want to write columns about. Okay, uh, my theory is a co- I write a hundred columns a year. I've written about uh, fifty eight hundred in my career so far, uh, and my feeling is if I don't write half my columns on subjects that are not just above the fold of the front page of the New York Times but aren't in the New York Times. Court decisions, books, cultural matters, uh, things that American people are very interested in. Okay, great. Um, Is there a future in the United States for a centrist debate or are we in a situation where we're never going to have that Politics. I think you're going to have it in 2020, I think. Uh, it's an old saying that American politics takes place within the 40-yard lines, between the 40-yard lines. That this, is a, this is sometimes a center-right country. It's sometimes a center-left country, but it's always a centrist country. Again, because most Americans are not that inflamed about politics. And that's as it ought to be. Politics shouldn't be that important to us. 
one of the beauties of life in our republic is the, the basic elements of our freedom and happiness are not at risk every time we have an election. When my children, I tell this story in the book, when my children were young in the early, in the early mid-80s, if they'd say, Daddy, can we do something? I'd say, yes, you can. Mondale lost. It's still a free country. I was making a point <laughs> in my oblique and doubtless completely lost on my children. <laughs> but I was making the point that you know, Mondale's a perfectly good, decent, experienced man. He'd have been a perfectly fine president. That's my point. Uh, if Mondale wins, Mondale loses. We're still a free country. Reagan wins, Reagan loses. We're a free country. Because the beauty of a, a republic with a written constitution is not everything's up for grabs all the time. The constitution constitutes. Okay. So it was a question about if you were advising a young thinker, someone who's just entering the era of being a public mm-hmm. intellectual, what would you encourage them to do? I, well, this is going to sound banal, but it's we're, Mark Twain said there are three things. Read, read, and read. Uh, There's just... uh, I have about 40 audible books on my phone now. I get up in the morning at 5.30, and before my feet hit the floor, I've hit the button, and I'm listening to a book. And while I'm shaving, I'm listening to a book. While I'm commuting, I have two and a half, three hours a day in otherwise completely wasted time. I'm listening to books. And people, if I would urge a young person to be just voracious for words. Because that's, people keep saying, they'll ask you, where'd you find that? I found it in a book. They'll look at me and say, wow. I mean, it, it, it wasn't on Facebook. No, a different, different kind of book. So two or three hours not spent scrolling 250. 40 character tweets is probably a better use of your time. That's correct. Um, You know the first president who tweeted? His tweet, it's in the book. His tweet began, hi, it's Barack. That's true. I rest my Uh, case. There you go. There you go. Um, So you've told me before that you've been out uh, around the country now um, for a few weeks in these kinds of discussions. Um, you know, when you're out doing not just talk radio or things where that's not really a conversation, do you have any Tocquevillian insights about what's going on in America that, that you'd like to share? Was there anything you learned from being in the conversations in different parts of the country? Yeah, it is <clears throat> that Americans are really hungry for a kind of learned, civilized talk. That's all. They want to be able to talk with each other. But, you know, we've had ferocious episodes in our history. The 1790s, when the uh, Federalists said that if Jefferson's elected, uh, the Bibles will be confiscated. And the Jeffersonians said that if the Federalists, uh, I'm sorry, the Federalists said that if, if the, the Jeffersonians would confiscate the Bibles, the Jeffersonians said the Federalists would install a monarchy. In the 1850s, we flew apart over the most fundamental question that politics can have about slavery. Uh, we had the Red Scares in the 1920s and the 1950s. What puzzles me today is why people are so excited 
because almost everything we argue about is a splittable difference. And we'll, we'll be able to do that again. That's great. And when, when you were out um, discussing your book with various parts of the country, where, where did you get the most enrichment of having a conversation besides the Commonwealth Club? What are the, uh, well, are the this, venues? This is the apogee here. But, um, <laughs> well, it, for ideological reasons, it, it, uh, it troubles me to say, but National Public Radio, the, uh, the best interviews I've had have been on, including... <laughs> KQED is here, right? Yes. Okay, well, that was that was one of them. That's great. Good. All right, I have to ask you, what are the worst? Uh, some of the cables, where I mean, because they they have at most a one track mind, and um... <laughs> how do you get below a one track mind? It's not easy. <laughs> uh, they'll say that. Welcome today. We're going to talk to George F. Wells, written a book called The Conservative Sensibility. Mr. Will, I notice you don't mention Donald Trump in the book. Let's talk about Trump. Oh, God. And you kept a straight face for that part of the conversation? Not always. (laughs) Um, What what was the the most interesting question that someone asked you in the the part of the dialogue that you've had, either as a uh, interview or as a as an audience member, I was asked about the is there a necessary connection between conservatism and religion, and uh, my answer is in the chapter in my book that I'm most enjoyed writing. It's called Conservatism Without Theism. Yep. I'm um, I'm an amiable low voltage atheist. I don't want to convert anybody. I'm, Say that again, an amiable, low-voltage atheist. Is that what yeah, you said? That's what I said. Okay. I just want to make sure I heard And uh, okay. I'm married to a ferocious Presbyterian. Uh, I'm not sure there's any other kind. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chapter I really loved writing because— And I enjoyed reading it, by the way. Well, very, thank you. Because it, it, it's— the, sub, the epigraph comes from Aeschylus, or Aristophanes, where I say, world is king, having driven out Zeus. Conservatives, to repeat, like world. They like the sense of things are unplanned. One of my intellectual heroes is Darwin, who followed the evidence where it took him. And he was, there's a wonderful book on Darwin called The Reluctant Mr. Darwin. He did not want to come to the conclusion he went to. This is a vicar's child. And uh, he came to it anyway. He said, I'm sorry, this is where the evidence leads. Someone once asked Bertrand Russell, a great British philosopher uh, who was an atheist, said, when you get to heaven and God says, why didn't you believe? And Russell said, well, I'm just going to say, sir, you didn't give me enough evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right, so I, I... I can't let you go without asking a question about baseball. Please. So, I, I have, my, my email address is office at baseballhabit.com. I love it. I my love it. wedding ring, which I designed myself, has the Major League Baseball logo on it. That is beautiful. So, it's a sickness, let's face it. <laughs> I don't appreciate My I'm, phone cover is a baseball. Yeah, so. yeah good. Yeah. So um, what... What drives your fascination with baseball? Uh, 
<clears throat> several things. First, it's one of our oldest institutions in the United States. So there's a in the diary of a soldier at Valley Forge. There's a reference to a game of base, and baseball was two words for uh, until early in the 20th century. Uh, it has this rich sediment of numbers, and it, there have been so few disjunctions in its history, dead ball, lively ball era, that it's possible to have these wonderful uh, comparisons over the generations. But also, it's, it's, the, it's the right sport for a democracy because it's the sport of the half-loaf. No one gets everything they want in baseball because it's so much failure. <laughs> well, they play 162 games. Every team goes to spring training knowing it's going to win 60 games. Every team knows it's going to lose 60 games. You play the whole damn season to sort out the middle 42 games. If you win 11, 10 out of 20, you're definitionally mediocre. If you win 11 out of 20, you win 87 games. You're in the outskirts of the postseason. So it, it's little, it, and it's the most severe meritocracy. You pay 162 games in 183 days. At the end of it, you are your record, period. That's great. So um, one more baseball question I still yeah. can't resist. So what, how do you feel about the increasing analytically driven baseball management? Interestingly enough, that's my next book, which I've already oh, started. Oh, there we go. Well, no, that was uh, not, I didn't tell you about you know what? You know what started me on it? What? When the commissioner, who I know and like... Was asked all these shifts, you know, they now shift because they know the tendencies of the ball players because of the analytics. And they said, well, maybe we should ban the shifts. And I thought, what industry, what society has ever prospered by banning, making it illegal to act reasonably on the basis of accurate information? <laughs> There's something wrong with that. So I'm going to f- figure it out. But uh, look, we have. In 2018, there were more strikeouts than hits. The Yankees going into tonight's game have hit a home run in 28 straight games, a record. Uh, there are now it, walks, strikeouts, home runs. The ball's not put in play in any of them. There are now four minutes on average between the ball being put in play. Something's got to change. Yep. Well, I can just tell you that I can't wait until that book's done to come back here and have another conversation. I'll be back. Baseball. (laughs) Thank you. So, unfortunately, as hard as it is to believe, we've reached the point in our conversation where there's only time for one more question. And uh, I'm going to take the moderator's privilege and and ask you to... uh, you have an audience here in the room, as well as, as watching this on and listening, that is, I, I would bet, very interested in trying to live in a world where the kind of conversations that you want to have is part of what we have every day, not when we have the privilege of having George Will in San Francisco. So what closing advice would you have for an audience like this to say, if we want to make this part of what we're talking about, instead of reading someone's tweets, what should we do? As individuals, we should obey the wisdom of justice, a judge learned hand, probably the most distinguished American judge never to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, he gave, I, I, I gave the Godkin lectures at Harvard in 1981, produced a book called Statecraft of Soulcraft, read by dozens. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> he gave 
more, more distinguished Godkin lectures than I did earlier than that. It's called the Spirit of Liberty. And he said, the Spirit of Liberty is the spirit that is not too certain it's right. Which is to, I guess Cromwell said it to some parliament he was about to prorogue. He said, I beseech ye in the bowels of Christ to consider that you might be wrong. <laughs> and uh, if we'd all do that, we'd, we'd get along a lot better. Uh, that's great advice. So our thanks to George Will, columnist for the Washington Post, author of a new book, The Conservative Sensibility, and a forthcoming book on baseball. Uh, a fourth book. <laughs> a fourth book. Thank you. I think you'll join me in, in suggesting that it is aptly described as an erudite wit. So thank you again George, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> we'd also like to thank our audiences here on radio, television, and the Internet. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Ethics and Accountability Series, underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation. We also want to remind everyone that there will be a book signing following the program tonight. And if you wish to have your book signed, please stay seated, and a member of our staff will give you further instructions once the program ends. I'm Lenny Mendoza, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned.